by the power of the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament. Then we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. My friends, it's just that simple. It's in the divine service that he's there for you, that he delivers the forgiveness. That's where he promises forgiveness will be. Uh, And so that's why it's so important uh, to be in church. We long that God would answer the prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Get me out of here. Get me out of this sin-filled world. That is Jesus Christ uh, who says, do not count their sin against them for my blood has paid the price for that. Now on 95.7 FM, it's Proclaiming the One with Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, short-timer Vicar Albert Bader, and uh, on only his second day as an almost wannabe vicar, we have uh, Vicar Daniel Golden, who's, uh, oh, I don't know, he's in the whipped puppy stage of the uh, of the vicarage. Um you uh, you weren't here for this transitional time last year, Pastor Moline, so this is all new to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm learning from you how we have used the new vicar to humble him. <laughs> well, not only the new vicars, but the old ones, too. But uh, we we try, schedule-wise, it doesn't always work out, but we try to have a, a week or two overlap so that the outgoing vicar can kind of school uh, the incoming vicar, it's kind of like uh, take your daughter to work day, you know, and uh, you um, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know you get to shadow the vicar, and it's really a good thing because you get to hear from the vicar's perspective what it's like to be a vicar at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. They can speak honestly and freely about us, and we're not there to correct or admonish. Um, Take them around and visit uh, the hospitals, the nursing homes, the shut-ins, and those kind of things. And it's a uh, it's a really it's a really good thing. So I told Vicar Golden that I was not going to let him talk today because he wasn't officially a vicar. But I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna show him how gracious and kind that I am. Almost Vicar Golden, say hello, would you please? Well, good morning, and I've learned to make coffee so far today. Okay, well, that's a good thing, and uh, people are not necessarily hearing this program in the morning, although we're recording it in the morning, so that's one of the things that you'll learn. Uh, we try to avoid those kind of uh, time references, but, um, you know, some of it some of it is inevitable. Today, we're going to be looking at the readings for the sixth Sunday after Trinity. It just happens to be Vicar Bader's last Sunday among us. He'll be here on uh, at least one more proclaiming the one programs because we record these uh, in advance but this will be his last sunday here and uh, just as a reminder the last sunday in july vicar bader's last sunday we have our uh, vicar farewell and roast at five o'clock in the evening you're all invited you're all invited so please come and join us and thank god for the gift of the vicarage program at good shepherd and have a little fun while we uh send vicar bader uh back to fort wayne the readings for the sixth sunday after trinity are really kind of uniquely grouped 
And I've had uh, more than one pastor tell me, this was always Pastor Schlaman's big deal, uh, I've had more than one pastor tell me that if you look at these readings in context, you have Luther's small catechism. You have all six chief parts of Luther's small catechism, especially in the divine service, if you're praying the Lord's Prayer and pray, uh, confessing one of the creeds, everything else is here. You've got the Ten Commandments, you've got the Sacrament of Holy Baptism, you've got confession and absolution in the uh, Gospel reading, and so um, this is really a, a wonderful day to look at catechesis overall or at one of the specific parts of the Catechism. To get us started, Vicar, would you read the intro to the day, selected verses from Psalm 28? The Lord is the strength of his people. He is a saving refuge of his anointed. Save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me. Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. We have a lot of word pictures here, but we have a couple of them that repeat. And in uh, right smack dab in the middle, Pastor, it says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me. And then a couple of lines down, it says, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. So we have calling out to God, crying out to God for help, and we are begging God not to be deaf, and to hear my voice, the voice of my pleas for mercy. Pastor, what's going on here with this uh, crying out to God and begging God to listen? I, I thought God was all-powerful and could listen to anything that he wanted to. Uh, why do I have to ask God to hear my prayer? We don't have to ask him to hear your prayer. He, he listens. Uh, what the uh, prayer is, is that um, he would pay attention and do the things that you're asking him to do. It's kind of like uh, the, the psalmist is saying, like a kid does at the end of a long car ride in the back, you know, mom, mom, pay attention to me. You know, uh, this is after three hours of are we there yet? And mom and dad have uh, tuned their ears off to the voice of their child in the back seat. The psalmist is saying, don't do that to me, Lord. Listen to the things I'm asking you. And then the next line, uh, lest if you be silent to me, I be like those who come down to the pit. And I think that's the key point of that particular line is that we want God to speak to us, to give us his word. It's his word that calls into existence all the things that we use to support our body and life in this world. It's the word that became flesh that uh, forgave us all of our sins, which brings us back to the second line where it talks about the anointed. Uh, and it's also the word, then, that the Holy Spirit uses to create and sustain faith, to call us by the gospel and enlighten and sanctify us with his gifts. And so we're asking God to listen to our prayer, that he might speak to us, and by the power of his word, keep us in the one true faith faith. So is God speaking and we are not listening? 
or is God withholding his voice from us, which uh, causes us not to be able to hear, to go down into the pit? You said that was the key right there. Uh, uh, Why would God intentionally withhold his word from us? Well, um, when God withholds his word, he does so here, at least in this world, only temporarily for the point of teaching us how much we need him and his word. And he only withholds it in certain ways. I mean, uh, the catechism is very clear that uh, he provides food, uh, clothing, and all those things to the evil as well as to the good. And so in that way, God is always using his word to support and sustain our lives here in this world. The place where the word is sometimes withheld is in regards to faith, and that's if we are in open, unrepentant sin, uh, and uh, we're not living the way that God would have us live. Sometimes God allows his word to be withheld so that our faith might die, and we see how much we need him uh, in our life so that we turn back to him in repentance again, at which point his word is declared again into our ears. Vicar, it says that uh, God, the Lord, Yahweh, is the saving refuge of his anointed who are his anointed, and how do I become one? Well, the, the anointed one is obviously Jesus Christ our Lord. That is what Christ means and what Messiah means, the anointed one. Jesus, the one who came into our flesh, lived and died and rose again for us and for our salvation. And uh, how are we anointed today? How are we washed clean of our sin? How are we brought in communion with the one anointed, Jesus Christ our Lord? It's through baptism. Baptism, where God washes away all of our sin by water and the word, where he claims us as his own, where he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we might have faith to believe the word of God that comes to us, that is, that our sins are truly forgiven, and that word of God which continues to strengthen and encourage our faith throughout all the days of our pilgrimage here in this life as we look forward to the life to come with the full assurance that we are truly now his anointed people, his very own children. Are you buying that, Pastor, that uh, this this anointed uh, is Jesus and then connects us to the anointing waters of holy baptism? It sounds like you Lutherans find baptism in everything and anything. Uh, is that a legitimate way to look at this text from Psalm 28? I think it's the correct way to look at this text. We do find baptism in everything because that's where God put it, because we're kind of thick skulled Germans, uh, and that way maybe we'll get it if he talks about it enough. Um, yeah, the word here in the Hebrew is uh, Mashiach or Mashiacho in this particular uh conjugation and that word uh, anointed is then the word that also becomes messiah in christ as vicar said and so god is the saving refuge of the messiah of jesus uh, as we even confess uh, christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father god brings jesus back to life um, on the third day now we in our baptism we're clothed in the righteousness of christ so now when god looks at us he doesn't see our guilt or our sin or our shame any longer he sees jesus and so when he uh looks at vicar bader and sees jesus he says well done vicar bader because of what christ has done that counts in his account uh, when he looks at me he says the same thing well done pastor moline uh, for the sake of christ in whom i am clothed not based upon my own feeble works or efforts but all completely based on Christ. The uh, one line also that sticks out in our time that we have left 
It says, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. What is this most holy sanctuary, and what does it have to do with everything that we've talked about here so far? Well, uh, at the time this psalm was written, the most holy sanctuary is referring to the temple. The temple of Solomon would have been standing at that time. Um, And the temple was the place where God was physically amongst his people. Uh, In the Old Testament times, he was in the Holy of Holies, uh, shrouded away behind curtain and protected uh, back there. Um, Maybe not protected from us, but rather we're protected from him, God hiding himself in that way. Uh, Later on, Christ uh, himself is God. God in the flesh, and he becomes the temple and even speaks of himself that way in the gospel, saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it again. And uh, that's uh, telling us who he is. He's the place where God is hidden in our midst, and we can see him clearly with our own eyes. The gift that God gives us is his word. His word takes on flesh and blood and makes its dwelling among us. His word of deliverance is delivered to us in the waters of holy baptism. God promises to hear our prayers. God promises to deliver us from our enemies and to be with us now and forever. We can take these promises to the bank because our God is a faithful God. Our God is a saving God. God. Keep all these things in mind. When we come back from our break, we're going to take a look at the gospel reading for the sixth Sunday after Trinity, Matthew 5, 20 to 26. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader, and uh, joining us for the first time of what will be many is uh, almost Vicar, our brand new Vicar, Daniel Golden, upstate New York, uh, getting his uh, feet wet here at Good Shepherd and also with a little Nebraska life. So uh, try not to cut him off in traffic. You just don't know what you can expect out of these Easterners uh, that are transplanted here in Nebraska. And uh, we'll, oh, he has no idea how much fun we're going to have with that. But um, we are looking at the readings for the sixth Sunday after Trinity. We uh, spend our first segment looking at the introit selected verses from Psalm 28. We cry out to God. God hears, answers, and responds. God does not hear and answer and respond because we cry out. We cry out because of our sin and because of God's promise to hear us. We lift up our voices, trusting that God is a loving, gracious, merciful, caring God. 
Our gospel reading for the sixth Sunday after Trinity is Matthew five, and the uh, sometimes, and we're gonna we're gonna work on this for the next year. Uh, sometimes they have like extra verses that are uh, encouraged for the day to kind of give you the context, and because we print out these uh, readings on an insert and we really don't want to have the type too small that you can't read it. Sometimes we just don't print those out. We're going to do a better job of that next year. Uh, yeah, this, Matthew, go, this go is ahead, one of the Pastor. ones where I think that part that's the optional is very important and it's good for us to hear. So Vicar, what we have printed on our insert is Matthew five, 20 to 26. Pastor, do you want to gear up 17, 18 and 19? Sure. And uh, then uh, we can, we can read that context afterwards. So, um, uh, and, I, and I agree with you. It'll be very helpful. Go. Starting at 17? or No, certain? starting at, unless you have 17. Yes. Oh, Vicar is way ahead of us. He knows that I haven't written his final Vicarage report yet. <laughs> and he's trying everything humanly possible to uh, butter me up for favorable marks. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> I know God's word. I am not going to take a bribe. <laughs> okay. Okay. Matthew five seventeen to 26. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called last or least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Wow, that's one of those uh, Bible passages that after you read that, and then you look up at the congregation and you go, this is the gospel of our Lord, and you think, Man, that's about as much law as you can possibly get. So <laughs> while it comes from the gospel accounts, this is pretty, pretty heavy law. Uh, uh, it's instruction in those first three verses that we um, uh, we don't have printed out on our insert for the day, but are extremely important to set the table and to set the context for what's about to be said. Now, Matthew 5 pastor. Matthew 5 is just one of those chapters that kind of jumps out at you when you hear the name Matthew 5. What should Christians automatically think? What context should they have? 
Well, the next uh, few chapters, including Matthew 5, are the Sermon on the Mount. It begins then with the Beatitudes, uh, and then it moves right into this uh, business that we're talking about today. I think between there it talks about salt and light, uh, and you are the light of the world stuff. But uh, this is the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, and so that's the way the context that should come up in our mind. Okay, a lot of a lot of Christians are aware of the Sermon on the Mount, at least the terminology. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the uh, first... 10 or 11 verses of Matthew 10 are commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. This is the context. Jesus is in a, uh, speaking in a sermon here. Mm-hmm. And many, uh, many scholars divide the Gospel of Matthew into five or seven great speeches or discourses or sermons. And uh, this is the first and this is the biggie right here. Many, many trees have died and much ink has been spilt writing commentaries on these words. And the verses that we skipped that uh, we had Vicar add in here, Matthew 5, 17, 18, and 19, are very, very important and sometimes controversial words in the church. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Well, of course, he came to save the world. He came to bleed and die to bring forgiveness, life, and salvation. He did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world through his person and his work. So the question then is, what about the law? What about the law of God? The Ten Commandments, the moral law, the holy law of God? Does it get thrown out? Does the law have any place in the life of a Christian? Does Jesus say the law wasn't all that important to begin with? And in these words, Jesus speaking, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17, 18, and 19, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. Now, Pastor, we could spend 10 programs and call them like proclaiming the one, and talk about all the different aspects of this particular question. Give me the Reader's Digest version of what Jesus means when he says, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Well, in verse 17, uh, he says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, and that's kind of the uh, code word, if you will, to uh, bring to mind the Old Testament. In other words, he says, um, don't think that I'm eliminating the Old Testament and just coming up with something completely new. I'm not. Everything that's in the Old Testament still applies. We even have a hymn that says the same thing, you know, the law of God is good and wise. And so what Christ does that we oftentimes fail to do is uphold the law as true and good because it comes from God, and at the same time say, the places where you fall short, my blood and forgiveness count there for you. Uh, Jesus then also tells us that he's the one who's going to fulfill the law on our behalf. So we talked about this a little bit in the last segment. We are talking about baptism. In baptism, we're clothed with Christ's righteousness. And what righteousness is that? That's the righteousness that has fulfilled all the law, uh, all the commands, all the the jots and tittles of what God has said in the Old Testament is finding its fulfillment in the personal work of Jesus. So when you're baptized and you're clothed in Jesus, God sees you fulfilling all the law because Christ did it in your place. 
Okay, so when you say fulfill the law, can I substitute the word keep it perfectly for the word fulfill? Yeah. Is that what we're talking about here? Uh, let's let's break this down so our hearers are not caught up in some of these academic things that are out there, and and they're everywhere. They're yep. everywhere. So make it as simple as possible. When 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 Jesus says, "I have come to fulfill the law," and again, law and the prophets, he's fulfilling the word of God. He is the promised one. All right, let's talk specifically about the law. Mm-hmm. To fulfill the law means what? It means to actively do everything that God told Moses um, and uh, is recorded in the Torah, in uh, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, the little tiny things um, for like, uh, you know, keeping the big festivals to the the major things, uh, everything in between Jesus actively does, and even passively uh, doing what God desires uh, him to do, uh, listening to God's word and being in that word. All of the things God demands from people, Jesus does. So Jesus kept the law perfectly. Every jot and tittle, every uh, what we would consider minor rule or regulation and the Ten Commandments, and it just so happens that the Ten Commandments is our Old Testament reading for this particular uh, day, the sixth Sunday after Trinity. Jesus kept it. Even at the on the cross, Christ says, uh, takes care of his mother, keeping the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother, having St. John take care of her uh, after he's gone. Yes, and uh, forgives his enemies from the cross. Yep. I mean, we've got we've got all of those. One other thing in this uh, portion that's not in our actual written reading for the day, uh, Jesus talks about uh, someone who would relax the law. Vicar, uh, I think that was verse eight, uh, 19. Can you read that verse? Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to relax the law, Pastor? (laughs) This is one we're really good at today, right? Um, God's law says um, you shall not um, sleep with someone of the same gender, right, if we're going to use our modern language, someone of the same sex. And uh, today we have churches all over that say, Ah, that's all right. Jesus died for it. You're forgiven. And what that does is it throws uh, the work of Christ under the bus and um, takes it for granted the same way that um, if kids are throwing baseballs against windows and mom and dad come home and discover it, forgive it, fix the window, and the kids do it again the next day and the next day and the next day, uh, that that forgiveness is getting taken advantage of and trodden over. And so... When we relax a law, that means we say, well, we're not going to hold you to the standard of God's word. We're going to, we're going to lessen it. And ultimately, the problem with that is that when you lessen the law and thereby lessen your violation of the law, you also lessen who Jesus is in his identity. He's not the Savior for those things that you have lessened. And therefore, you really have no need for a Jesus any longer if you never break a rule. And I know it's hard to hear and think about, but we all sin, we all fall short, we all break God's law, 
every single one of them, and thereby uh, we all need forgiveness from Christ. Yeah, that is that is spot on. If the law is not that big a deal, then our sin is not that big a deal. And if the law and sin are not that big a deal, then Jesus is not that big a deal. We need to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the sixth Sunday after Trinity. When we come back, we'll continue our look at Matthew 5, 20 to 26. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. at noon on KNNA. What a beautiful hymn and what a beautiful arrangement of that hymn as well. God's own child, I gladly say it, I am baptized into Christ. Uh, great hymn, we'll, uh, we'll be singing that this, uh, this Sunday, the sixth Sunday after Trinity. The uh, epistle reading, Romans 6, uh, entirely devoted to God's gift of holy baptism. I'm not sure if we're going to get to that uh that particular text, you might have to just come and hear it preached on on Sunday, but uh, we do have a, a wonderful connection here. The gospel reading, Matthew 5, uh, we spent most of our last segment looking at those verses 17, 18, and 19. We want to, uh, we want to look at 20 through 26 here. Uh, Pastor, it says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now, the preceding verse, verse 19, is talking about very, very stern warnings against those who would relax the requirements of the law. And we ended last segment talking about the ways the requirements of the law are relaxed, the ways we justify ourselves in watering down God's word, watering God, uh, watering down God's law. There are several places in Scripture that give us very, very dire warnings that we should not add or subtract anything from the word of God. So we have this contrast in these verses, verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, don't water down God's law. 
And then verse 20 says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to heaven. With those two verses in mind, Pastor, what is Jesus teaching us in this part of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, that's exactly why splitting these two parts up uh, is not a good idea because this verse that our uh, verse 20 really builds on the verse that came before it. It's telling us that um, you can't relax the law because if you're going to save yourself by the law, you have to be completely and totally perfect. And when we look at ourselves and our lives and we realize the fullness of the law, we realize that nobody can do that. Uh, not even uh, us respected members of the clergy are holy enough to uh, save ourselves by our works and by our actions. And therefore, that leaves us in a weird position here, uh, unable to save ourselves because we haven't kept the law perfectly. We haven't kept it uh, better than the scribes or the Pharisees. Uh, we haven't uh, fulfilled what God wants us to do. And so on our own, we deserve hell, uh, which I think he's talked about here a little bit before as well. And so that leaves us in this awkward position where we need some help. Uh, and maybe help's not quite the right word. We need to be saved, uh, rescued completely and totally. And that's where Jesus is coming in. And that's what he's teaching us here. You can't do it on your own. You need me. And I'm the one who fulfilled the law. And not only will I do it for me, but I'll also do it for you uh, and that drives us then back to baptism, where we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. Vicar, who could possibly have a righteousness that would exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? The scribes and Pharisees considered the most holy, the most righteous people because of their outward show and their outward appearance. Uh, we know that they weren't righteous because other places Jesus talks about how they're like whitewashed tombs and full of dead bo bones on the inside. But we can't see that. Only God can see that. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't go to heaven. Whose righteousness could possibly exceed the scribes and Pharisees? Only the righteousness of those who have faith. This is talked about elsewhere in the scriptures, uh, talking even about Father Abraham, a man that by his outward actions uh, seemed to be very righteous in most of uh, his outward actions. Anyhow, he's the one that, you know, when he went to battle, he always gave 10% back to those uh, who helped him out and stuff like this. And he was a good man and an honorable man, even in the sight of all the pagan nations that he was around. And yet he wasn't a righteous man by anything he did. He was righteous by faith. Faith is what makes one righteous because faith is what clings to the word of God that declares us to be righteous despite ourselves and despite our sin. And the only reason why we're righteous is because the one true perfect righteous one, the one who heard, heard the word of God and kept it, Jesus Christ, has lived, died, and risen again for us and for our salvation. And he gives his righteousness to us as a free gift in the waters of baptism and continually throughout our lives through the word. So it is not the good work of faith, but it is faith which connects us to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so since he is perfectly righteous, his righteousness becomes ours. Pastor? I was going to say, and this goes back to where Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. What do you see in the Old Testament? Uh, you see these people who 
uh, are supposed to be the holy patriarchs that are supposed to be so good. And uh, Jacob has more than one wife and has favorites, and they fight amongst each other. Uh, we have uh, Moses, who uh, didn't circumcise his own kids, and then who also didn't follow God's word perfectly in uh, uh, striking the rock for water to come out. We have uh, the judges. Uh, we get more information as you go forward with the judges. And all of them had their shortcomings. Gideon, um, Samson, I think, is maybe the one we see it most clearly. Uh, and we, we keep having these people who are the saviors of Israel, and they have sin, and they fall short. David, uh, Saul, uh, you can go through the whole list, Solomon, all of them have sin. None of them exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, at least what they demand. And so there's only one person who can be the Savior, and that person is Jesus who's speaking these words to us. We have kind of a case study then that comes after these these words about uh, your righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I think most people would say, as they look at the list of the Ten Commandments, there's at least one commandment that I haven't broken, and that's number five. You shall not murder. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about, uh, you know, bearing false witness against my neighbor. I'm not going to ta- talk about uh, keeping the Sabbath day holy, but by golly, I haven't gotten a rope or a knife or poison or a gun. I have not murdered anyone. <laughs> Pastor, how in the world does Jesus now talk about and teach us that the law is not just an outward kind of an action that we either do or don't do, but the law exposes the deep-rooted condition of sin that dwells in everyone's heart, using that fifth commandment. Yeah, it was Pastor Poppy that did the murder in the library with the candlestick, uh, right? No. Jesus cuts right to the chase, and he gets to the intent of your heart because he knows that's where sin really has its uh, beginning. And he says, if you've even thought... angry thought about your neighbor if you're driving through Lincoln and all of a sudden you're yelling at the car that cuts you off uh, or the uh, the new vicar from the east coast who's going over the speed limit passing by or whatever uh, when you have that anger that that anger is really the root cause of all murders and so therefore you violated the law by murdering them we even have this in our definition of what the uh, commandment means in the catechism you should not hurt or harm your neighbor in his body uh, but help and support him in every physical need. And so even failing to help and support someone in their physical need, uh, we would say that's murder. That's uh, breaking God's law and commandment. And so it gets to what the purpose of the law is and where it begins uh, that we violate this in our heart. And he says, all of you, therefore, are murderers because, I mean, I murdered my brothers about a million times before I turned 18 and moved out of the house. And, uh, you know, Vickers got a lot more brothers and sisters than I do. I'm sure he's done it more. We're all guilty across the board. Not one of us is righteous. No, not one. So uh, Jesus here is uh, talking about how murder is not just the outward act. It is a sin of the mind and of the heart as well. We we commit murder with our words. We commit word, murder with our, our ideas, with our actions, whether we go through with it or not. Uh, this is this is still murder in the sight of God, uh, Vicar. I think 
one of the things Luther did so beautifully in his explanations uh, to the commandments is he taught us that it is not just the outward act, but we sin in thought, word, and deed. And the commandments and Luther's meanings to the commandments in, the, in Luther's small catechism really expose us, just like Pastor Moline was talking about, really expose us for the sinner's for who we are. So God here in uh, Matthew 5, Luther in the small catechism. So God just wants us to feel miserable. God just wants us to feel bad because of our sins. Isn't this why people stay away from church? Because they don't want to hear about all this sin talk and sin stuff. What's the point? What's the purpose? The purpose of is to... Do what the law does to us, poor miserable sinners. It shows us our sin. It shows us how far we have fallen from the glory of God. It shows us that by our own reason or strength, we could never be saved. We could never do enough good works that would outweigh the bad because we are that totally corrupt that even in our good works, we still sin because they're tainted with our sin. And so... When we hear of things like this, it makes us cling all the tighter to Christ and his righteousness because we have to believe fully and truly that he is the only one who can forgive our sins. He is the only one who can give us a new heart that can trust God with all of our heart, soul, and mind and that can love our neighbors as ourselves. And it'll be imperfected in this world. It's kind of a now-not-yet type of situation. We know that through baptism, we know that through the forgiveness that Christ has given us, we are a saint. That is, we are the holy people of God, and yet we still struggle with these sins of anger and murder in our hearts. And so that drives us to our knees and drives us to church each and every Sunday to hear time and time and time again how Jesus has delivered us from our sins and has promised us eternal life with him where we will no longer have to worry about sin, death, or the devil, but he will be there as our continual peace and comfort and shower us with his righteousness. We struggle with our sin every day. We can relax the requirements of the law to make us feel good about ourselves, or we can hear God's word in its truth and purity. We can be driven to our knees so that we can hear. The good news, the life-giving, life-changing gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus. When we come back from our break, we want to take a look at our epistle reading, Romans 6, 3 to 11. How do we get Jesus? We're driven to our knees. We know that we are sinners. We know we can't save ourselves. What do I have to do? What do I have to pay, pray, or how much do I have to obey for Jesus to come into my heart? Roman 6 answers that question for us. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back.
God's own child, I gladly say it. I am baptized into Christ. What a what a marvelous hymn. It's a hymn that we'll be singing Sunday in church. The service will be geared around the epistle reading, the epistle reading that we're going to hear here in just a moment, Romans 6, 3 to 11. like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us for worship. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 1030 with Sunday School for All Ages in between. Wednesday evening, year-round at 630. Check out the archives, www.thecross957.org. And any worship service that we have, we play live. You can listen to that through our uh, KNNA app or at 95.7 LP right here in and around Lincoln, Nebraska. Romans 6, 3 to 11. Vicar, take it away. Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6 is one of those awesome chapters in Scripture. And uh, not to uh, belabor the point, but Romans 6 comes after Romans 5. And Romans 5 comes after Romans 4. And Romans 4 comes after Romans 3. The, uh, The most systematic epistle that Paul has written is, uh, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but is the book of Romans. And so in Romans uh, chapter 1 and 2 in the first half of 3, you have the harsh condemning law that uh, gives no excuse and uh, there is no place to hide. Halfway through chapter 3, through chapters 3, 4, and 5, you have some of the most beautiful gospel, a beautiful, beautiful uh, proclaiming of justification by grace through faith on account of the person work of Jesus Christ. It is just dripping with Jesus, and it almost begs the question, how do I get it? And now we have Romans 6, and Romans 6 is all about baptism. Pastor? And I know you don't like to toot your own horn, but uh, you're doing a Bible study here beginning on Sunday mornings on these chapters. Uh, I think we have four, five, and six here coming up. Yeah, four, five. And, uh, we, we, worked, uh, we worked through uh, this past year, one through three. Romans is a big book. We're taking a verse-by-verse, almost word-by-word study through it, so it's going to take us a few years to get through it. So but if you we- want to learn more, come and... and uh, on Sunday mornings, listen to Pastor Poppy's Bible study on yeah. these chapters. Sunday, Sunday morning Bible study, 9.30 in the Fellowship Hall. And uh, you can have little tiny bits of uh, uh, donut and uh, juice to uh, go along with your uh, coffee and God's Word. Okay. Do you not know? 
This uh, rhetorical question is uh, a, a device that Paul uses a lot in his writing. What's he, what's he trying to get across there, Pastor, with this whole do you not know stuff? Well, the way that it's written in the Greek is actually uh, a question that um, expects an answer of, yes, I do know. Uh, and so that's kind of, it's just a rhetorical device, you do know. And it's worth saying here, too, that we have optional readings, again, of verse 1 and 2 that we don't have printed off in our bulletin insert, but then are also very important for understanding this chapter, where Paul says, What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then we have that do not, do you not know question. And so what Paul is saying matches up with what we've heard in the gospel and also in the other readings where the law still applies to us as Christians. We're not set free from the law. It hasn't been abolished. Uh, it is still good because it still comes from God, and we still are supposed to keep it even though we've been forgiven of all of our sins. We live a Christian life obeying the law because we have been baptized into Christ, and that's now our identity uh, we're found in Christ, and because we're found in Christ, the things we do ought to reflect well upon the one to whom we belong. And and perhaps uh, thinking about it in terms of ancient slavery is a way to think about it. We represent Christ here on earth, and we don't want to do anything that gives a bad name to Christ um, in the same way that an ancient slave, when he went out and did the business of the master, was representing him. These words uh, clearly teach us that baptism is not symbolic. Baptism is not our choice or decision. Baptism is God at work. God's own child, I gladly say it. I am baptized into Christ. I am baptized. This is a passive. Vicar, in Luther's small catechism, these words, uh, or many of these words from Romans 6, are used as a proof text as Luther is teaching us about baptism. This is in Baptism Part 4 of Luther's small catechism. I think it is uh, one of the most neglected sections of the catechism, and I think it is the mo one of the most important sections of our catechism because it connects us very, very clearly to from the living the baptized life and sin and who we are apart from Christ and connects us through the waters of baptism to that humble child that wants to and is ready to receive the Lord's Supper. Baptism Part 4 asks the question, what does such baptizing with water signify? Vicar, how does Romans 6 answer that question? Well, it answers the part of what does it signify? It signifies death and resurrection. And it is something that we do not do of our own accord. Baptism is not a work that we do, but as you said, uh, these are all in the passive tense. Um, St. Paul is speaking here. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, who were baptized, we were buried, we were brought back to life, uh, these are all things that are happening outside of ourselves. It is the work of God. And so... Our baptism uh, isn't simply something that signifies our uh, confession or signifies our belief in God. No, this is a work of God that actually kills and makes alive, that actually joins us to the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
the death that we die needs to happen every day. That old Adam, or if you prefer, old Eve that lives inside of us is daily drowned with uh, all of its passions, lust, and evil desires in the death of Christ. And it daily comes forth, emerges with the resurrection of Christ, a new person, a new creation. Pastor, it was several years ago, I had uh, one of our members ask me a simple question. They said, uh, I know that Jesus died on Good Friday, and I know he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. So when did Jesus die again? And I was taken aback by that question. Every resurrection in the Bible, it's assumed that the person who was raised back to life died again. It never dawned on me that someone would think that Jesus, crucified, risen, then after a while, died again. Why is it so important that we understand verse 9? We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So what? What's the big deal? Well, uh, the question has, that, like you said, a good uh, foundation. We have uh, a tomb for Lazarus in Bethany uh, right next to uh, Jerusalem. We also have a tomb for Lazarus, Lazarus on the island of Cyprus, uh, one of those people raised from the dead that uh, died again. And yet with Jesus, it's different. He didn't uh, die again. He ascended into heaven and lives and reigns there from all eternity. And um, he's there even now sitting at the right hand of God. Um, and we'll see him there one day as well. The good news is that since he will never die again, uh, and this is the importance of it, we, when we are resurrected, will never die again. Because as Paul says, we've been baptized into Christ and his death. And if we were buried and killed with him, we also have been resurrected with him. And if he never dies again, uh, we also will never die once we are resurrected uh, completely and totally. And so the, the reason that's important is because it means our eternity. Um, and this is one of the, the good news is about God's uh, unchangeableness, if you will, uh, since he will never die again and he promises that we'll do the same, we also have the promise that we'll never die again. Pastor, in our time that we have left, um, I mentioned earlier in one of our segments about uh, Lutherans are often accused of finding baptism behind every shadow in the Word of God. Every time water is mentioned, uh, Lutherans figure out a way to turn it into baptism. Uh, these words here from Romans 6 are, are clearly baptismal. Uh, is it possible for the Christian to emphasize baptism too much? Is it possible for the Christian to place so much value or importance on baptism that the work of Christ is somehow diminished? Is that possible? Um, it's not possible, if you understand baptism correctly, to be a work of Christ. If you think baptism is your own work and your faith is therefore in your baptism because you made a decision for Jesus or something like that, you've already um, gone off the edge in the wrong direction. But as long as we understand that uh, baptism is a passive action as far as we're concerned, and it's the work of God uh, upon people, then there's no, no way you can overemphasize how important it is to say, God saved you. 
God took away your sin. God made you live forever, and he did this through your baptism. Uh, all that baptize, extolling baptism does is extol God then. And uh, your key words there were understanding what baptism is and that baptism is a work of God, not us. I, I love how the now sainted Professor Mark Wart used to say, baptism is the delivery of the deliverance. The delivery of the deliverance. How does God deliver the deliverance won by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus through word and sacrament. That word connected to water is a powerful word. Not because the uh, powerful H2O, like Adam Sandler said in Waterboy, uh, the power is in the word of God. It is always the word, the word, the word. We've sadly got to bring this uh, program to a close. Thank you for tuning in once again to Proclaiming the One. So, Sunday morning, get up, reach paper, drink your coffee, pray for your pastor, and above all, go to church. We'll see you again next week. God's richest blessings in Christ.